Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and from Washington, D.C., this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we bring you updates from the battlefront. Dom Nichols interviews the White House National Security Council spokesman John Kirby, and I speak to Alternative Executive Director at the World Bank, Roman Kishore. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. One year ago... The world was bracing for the fall of Kyiv. Well, I've just come from a visit to Kyiv, and I can report Kyiv stands strong. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Friday, the 15th of September, one year and 203 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today in Washington, I'm joined by our associate editor Dominic Nichols and assistant comment editor Francis Sternley, and from London, Telegraph video journalist and director of Life on the Frontline, Valerie Brown. I started by asking Dom for the latest news from Ukraine. So the news this morning, let's start with the British Ministry of Defence that says the reporting on the strike yesterday and Sevastopol reported by, by numerous sources saying British Storm Shadow missiles had hit the submarine there in the dry dock. British MOD saying it, it, it had inflicted catastrophic damage on the submarine in Crimea. It said the submarine, the, the Rostov-on-Don, which was in dry dock, the damage is thought to take years to return to service and the repairs will cost hundreds of millions of dollars. It said the loss of the Rostov removes one of the Black Sea Fleet's four cruise missile submarines, which have played a major role in striking Ukraine and projecting Russian power. There is a realistic possibility that the complex task of removing the wreckage from the dry docks will place them, the dry docks that is, out of use for many months. It says the Minsk, which is a Rapucha-class landing ship, was also hit in the attack um, yesterday, and that has almost, in their words, almost certainly been functionally destroyed. Ukraine and British sources said that Storm Shadow missiles had landed on the target. There was some, well, hadn't confirmed it yesterday. Russian Defence Ministry said three rockets had, had got through air defences but didn't specify the type. Now let's go into Ukraine to the east or further into Ukraine to the east around Bakhmut. Ukraine's military says that, uh, I mean, we've been talking about the fighting there for a while, says that the, uh, the village of Andivka, has been retaken. That's to the south of south of Bakhmut. This comes from the general staff saying it's it's taken Adivka, and also had partial success in Klishkiva nearby. And then further, let's, there's further waves of attack in the area around Bakhmut. There's a lot of fighting around there. Um, Russia has conducted unsuccessful offensive operations in the area. Ten counterattacks to try and dislodge Ukrainian positions, according to Ukrainian MOD. And then finally, just on the uh, update here, Shoigu, so Sergei Shoigu, the defence defense minister, says that they're going to bolster, the Russian Navy will bolster its fleet with a dozen more ships and submarines by the end of the year. That will not, even if that's true, and there's no, no suggestion it is, but uh, even if it's true, that will not impact the, the number of um, ships in the Black Sea fleet because uh, under the Montreux Convention, which is uh, enacted and enforced by Turkey, only those uh, those those military assets that are in the in the Black Sea Fleet at the moment in a you know, com- combat situation can stay there. So there's not going to be any additional. Well, there shouldn't be any additional combat power moved in by 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 Russia. Thank you very much, Dom. Francis Sternley, can I come to you? There's been lots of developments in the diplomatic space. Where would you like to start? 
Thanks, David. More details are emerging regarding the UN General Assembly in New York next week. And President Zelensky's intentions, we understand, for that and for the trip he will be making to the United States are coming to fruition. So we learn that he will visit Washington next week in a bid to get billions of dollars in aid for Ukraine pushed through Congress. The trip is expected to take place after the Ukrainian president addressed world leaders at the UN General Assembly in New York, which I hope to be attending. Sources have told the Washington Post all this, and it will be his second journey, of course, to the capital since the start of the war. A person who's familiar with the matter said that the move was to reinforce the importance of Congress granting President Biden's request for more than $24 billion in additional aid to Ukraine. Now, I think the timing is significant because, of course, autumn, winter is is coming up. There are concerns about the US support and perhaps Ukraine is trying to bank as much as it can at this moment before we enter full election cycle and President Biden may be forced to make certain concessions on certain financial costs. So I think that's possible. This issue is a controversial one in the US, suffice to say, where Republican legislators are divided on sending further military and financial support. But Senator Mitt Romney, who I interviewed a couple of days ago for the podcast, which you can hear in yesterday's episode, urged legislators to continue funding the war effort, declaring it extraordinarily wise in investment terms. So the simple fact that the Russian army is being decimated, his words, for only a tiny amount of American defence spending. Now, there'll be more on this next week. I've had some very interesting conversations with both Democratic and Republican Congresswomen and men, and I'm more optimistic, perhaps, than you would be led to believe by some of the analysis of the bipartisanship or lack of bipartisanship between the two sides and in Congress specifically about support for Ukraine. But as I say, I think that's something to discuss in more detail next week. Now, some interesting developments at the end of Kim Jong-un's trip to Russia, which appears to have concluded early. So Putin gifted a cosmonaut's glove and a rifle to the North Korean leader. But Dmitry Peskov, the Kremlin spokesman, has said they he wasn't sure how long the North Korean delegation would remain in Russia, but that there were no more meetings scheduled between Putin and Kim, despite there not being any formal announcements of any deals being struck. He said, and I quote, this is their prerogative. We appreciated the visit itself. It was timely, useful and constructive. News agencies have reported that the two leaders would tour an arms factory and inspect the Pacific fleet moored at Vladivostok. But these tours do appear to have been cancelled. Instead, Putin chose a teleconference with his security council and flew to Sochi to meet with Alexander Lukashenko, the Belarusian president, of course, which I'll come to in a second. Indeed, the Kremlin has claimed that Russia and North Korea didn't sign any military agreements at all at the summit. And so there are some people saying, well, perhaps there's been some sort of hoo-ha behind the scenes. I'd, personally, I think this shouldn't really surprise us. After all, Kiev believes North Korea has been supplying Russia with artillery shells for the past month and a half. And the expectation is that that will continue clandestinely. Why publicly admit a deal and risk the triggering of fresh sanctions? It's far better to shake hands, raise a toast, and then let the spymaster sort out the details out of the public eye. Now, I mentioned Putin speaking to Lukashenko, and uh, following that, uh, we understand Russia um, and Belarus have had some more conversations behind the scenes. And indeed, Lukashenko himself admitted that Western sanctions have made both Russia and Belarus poorer. I'll quote from him. He said, we live a little poorer. I think next year will be a good year for us, and we will enter the pre-sanctions period of our economy. Now, quite what is evidence for that is, I don't know, but large questions remain about the strength of the Russian economy in particular as a consequence of this war, with varying interpretations of the degree of the damage rendered. But it is undeniable that it is having an impact, which is how severe remains a key discussion point we will continue to return to. Lastly, just a couple of stories out of Russia, both amusing in their own way. One, the Kremlin has denied the investigation into the death of Yevgeny Prigozhin is moving too slowly, having gone more than three weeks without an update on the Wagner boss's mysterious plane crash. A Kremlin spokesman has said 
it's not a simple investigation, not a simple incident. The investigation is ongoing. That is why giving some kind of commentary would be absolutely premature. Hmm. The other story is that the hit American Barbie film has seemingly taken Russia by storm, beating a rather dour propaganda blockbuster produced by the Kremlin to promote its war in Ukraine. James Kilner has written this up and looking into the fact that despite the failing of the Kremlin's morality test that the film has undergone, bootlegged versions of Barbie have now been dubbed into Russian. So just for context here, Hollywood film studio pulled out of Russia last year after the invasion, but with Russian cinemas on the brink of collapse and determined to sustain an air of normality, the Kremlin has turned a blind eye to bootlegged versions of many American films. But this strategy is arguably risking undermining the Kremlin's propaganda message. Instead of flocking to watch films about the corrupt West, young Russians want to watch Barbie, uh, a film obviously about a fantasy world of loud Americanisms that promote equal rights and other things that are very controversial in Russia. The Kremlin doesn't approve of Barbie, which is <laughs> what a sentence. Uh, you know, Last month, its culture ministry issued a statement saying that Barbie didn't meet the goals and objectives set by the head of state to preserve and strengthen traditional Russian and spiritual moral values. Instead, the Kremlin wanted Russians to watch a film called Witness, a propaganda tale about a Jewish violin player from Belgium who gets stranded in Kiev on the opening days of the invasion last year. And in the film, he sees his manager get raped and murdered by Ukrainian soldiers. And a Ukrainian officer marches around with a copy of Hitler's Mein Kampf. I mean, propagandists rarely do subtlety. But as we Brits say, this really does take the biscuit. The film has flopped. On the Russian film ranking website, Witness has received an average rating of 3.9 out of 10 and has been criticised for its poor acting, boring plot and budget production. It's better to drink and fall asleep than watch such crap, writes one reviewer. Perhaps they would have had better luck with Cosmonaut Barbie. But it just does speak here, I think, to the fact that it's always complicated. I think there's an assumption quite often in the West that you read about these kind of missives from, from the top and assume that just because propaganda films are what people are being encouraged to see, that this must mean that the whole population is brainwashed. But there is always more complexity as to the reality beneath the surface. Well, thank you very much, Dom and Francis. And I must say, it is a shame we're not hearing James Kilner talk about Barbie as well. That would bring us some joy, I think. Valerie Brown, Telegraph journalist and director of Life on the Frontline. Thank you so much for joining us. Your series is going live tomorrow. Can you tell us about it? What did you do? Where did you go? It's been a series that I've been running with The Telegraph since last August. So the series follows a charity. They're called Vans Without Borders. They've actually come on and talked a little bit before. And what they do is they drive aid all the way from England to the front line. And it's to villagers who've just been left behind. They're either elderly or disabled and they don't have the capacity to evacuate the areas which are very, very hot. So what they do is Vans Without Borders go into those areas which have sometimes recently been occupied by the Russians and give them essential medicine, food and aid to just make sure that they've got everything that they need and they're as comfortable as possible. What they do is film the whole thing and send me all the rushes and I then piece together the episodes here at the Telegraph Studios. It's a really interesting way of how user-generated content has merged with traditional journalism and made a documentary where we can actually access the front line like never before. I actually went to Ukraine in August. For that reason, we've done a three-part special and I went with the charity and actually went to see what it was like about 30 kilometres from the front line. The front line is fluid, so we have no idea. But whilst we were at the army base, we could hear some incoming and outgoing shelling. And also we drove to a training ground to do some shooting and we could hear some booms there. So I could tell that we were very close. It was a really interesting experience. I was quite shocked about how the Ukrainian soldiers were living. 
when you see warfare in old 90s movies, you see these sort of Camp Bastion type of sort of field tents and everything's clean and clinical and everything's organised. In this war effort, the soldiers are forced to stay in little farmhouses that villagers have given them access to. And it's quite cramped conditions. There's no plumbing, there's no running water. All the soldiers are just cramped in together. There's not really a toilet. There's just outhouse with the sort of hole in the ground. And they're just in there with all their weapons. They've, they had this massive weapon cache that they showed us, which was absolutely incredible. Stuff that they'd procured from the Russians, I could see. They showed me a PKM, which I only found out what that gun was when I visited them. But they had stolen that from a Russian tank and an AK-74, which they... After we visited the base, we actually drove 45 minutes to a shooting range and we got some footage, which will be in the first episode, of those two guns. And I was just completely blown away by, first of all, how old those guns were. They're really smoky and they're evidently Soviet. And just how how modified they were. They had some specific modifications that you could only actually procure from Russia, I'd been told. So it was really interesting to see their weapons cache. It was really good of them to show us what they had. Thank you so much, Valerie. Can I ask, what was the interaction like between the volunteers and the soldiers? And did anything surprise you when you were there? What what was different to what you expected when you were near the front? So the soldiers are really grateful to the volunteers because they bring the soldiers food because... How it is, how I described that these soldiers are just living in little farmhouses, it's because of the new age of warfare. So the Russian drones could easily spot a a massive field tent. In this war, the Ukrainians are staying in farmhouses that could be civilian. So these soldiers help the civilians that are living on the front line by sharing their rations with them in exchange for letting them stay on their farmlands. Jack Ross is the head of Vans Without Borders. When they turn up with food and supplies for the Ukrainian soldiers, they are so grateful to see them and just excited to see some other people from the UK who just come all of this way. So they're really grateful and they're just so happy to show us what they've been doing, how they're living. I I would have thought that there would have been maybe a lower morale, but morale seems to be quite high from what I saw anyway. Just one more question from me, Valerie. How would you explain what you saw to people very far away from the conflict? What would be the one lesson or learning that you've taken from your trip out to Ukraine? What shocked me the most was I first arrived in Kyiv and then I went to Dnipro. And then it was like I went back in time when I went to Zaporizhia to the actual front line. People in Kyiv and Dnipro are just living in cities very much like London. There's almost a celebratory sort of blitz mentality about the Ukrainians that are living far away from the front line. And there's just an insane polarity when you actually get to the front line. It's like you've gone back in time. There's no running water. The, the soldiers are all living in quite bad conditions. I was told that the one that I witnessed for myself was actually quite good compared to some of the ones that I haven't seen. So I think for me, my main takeaway was if you saw footage of Kyiv today, there's civilians just walking around, even going out on a Saturday night and trying to have as normal a life as they possibly can amid the shelling. They are really just trying to get on with their normal lives. But then when you go to the front line and you see The difference in living standards, the difference in what the soldiers really have to put up with whilst they're fighting for their country, I think that was the biggest shock. And some of the soldiers actually told me that when they're on leave and they go to the cities, a couple of servicemen said to me, what are we fighting for if if the people in the cities are dancing? But... I can see it from both sides. If you're a civilian, you're living under fear of shelling, but you want to keep morale up as a country, so you're trying to get on with your life as best possible. And as a soldier, you really do have to put up with some really 
abhorrent living conditions and all the fighting killing on the front line. So I can see it from both sides. It's a really interesting polarity. That's my main takeaway. Thank you so much, Valerie. Can you just tell us where can listeners find life on the front line? It's on the Telegraph and also on the Telegraph YouTube at nine o'clock on Saturday the 16th. And it's a three-part series. So there'll be one every Saturday for the rest of September. Well, thank you so much for joining us and telling us about your work. Thank you so much, Valerie Brown. Thank you. Let's go to our final thoughts because we have quite a few interviews, I think, from our time in Washington here for today's podcast. So, Francis Sternley, why don't you go first? Thanks, David. Yesterday was our event at the British Embassy here in DC with 150 of you, our listeners, who came from all across the United States to attend. It was Truly a humbling experience. I think I speak for all of us when I say that, especially as we were joined on stage by Kim Kagan, president of the Institute for the Study of War, and Professor Elliot Cohen, distinguished political scientist and former counsellor in the United States Department of State. It was a really fascinating discussion with a particular emphasis on the role of the US and the implications of various possible outcomes in next year's presidential election. You'll be able to hear and watch that episode very soon. People said very kind things about our work afterwards, but everyone understood that this is about the issues. And as I said earlier, I will be leaving Washington more positive than I was about the prospects of bipartisan support for Ukraine, particularly in Congress. But more on that next week, as you'll hear further interviews with people that all of us spoke to here in D.C., But for now, thank you again for everyone who was able to make it yesterday. We know that there were many of you who wished to come, but we didn't have room. We've made a note of that. And it is our wish to be able to host further discussions with experts and you very soon. I will be in New York next week, hoping to come onto the podcast live for a few of the days there. It's, as I say, the UN General Assembly, which President Zelensky is expected to speak at. So it'll be very interesting assessing how that goes down there, but also to see what the UN itself is like. I've never been to the headquarters before, and I would like to speak to various officials there who can give an insight into what that is like. I've already reached out to some of my contacts in that world, but if you're listening to this and work at the UN in New York, do get in touch because I'd be interested to speak to you. And if there's anyone at the UN or coming over with President Zelensky who might be able to get us in the room with him to interview him for the podcast, please also reach out. It would be a real privilege to do that. But as I say, thank you all very much for those of you who've looked after us here in Washington. It's been an absolutely fantastic few days and um, looking forward to going to New York next week and meeting some more of you. Well, thank you very much. Francis, we came to the US to try and take the temperature of support from Ukraine's most important strategic ally. Dom Nichols, can you tell us a bit about your time? What did you find? I found a lot of love and support for Ukraine, most importantly, and support for us, the pod, for what we're doing. And so thank you to everybody who's helped us. I tried to Get around the country. Turns out it's quite big, actually, this country. On a map, Google Maps, when you're planning your flights and asking Kerry to book your flights in your car, it's only two or three inches, depending on how close you scroll into the screen. No, it's actually quite big. It turns out it takes hours to get across. Time zones, 6 a.m. in Colorado. Oh, God. But no, thank you so much for everyone for helping, guiding, supporting uh, buying me water when I needed it. It's been an incredible week. I, I, as I say, I've been speaking to folks from around around the around the country and from different angles of not only this war but also the, the sort of the profession of arms more generally. I, I try to cover everything from look at mental health down at Boulder Crest, which we will cover. We will we'll talk about again down to the next generation who's going to inherit the the mess that we've left them at Providence Day High School in Charlotte. Yeah, trying to get different views. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you to Glenn at the Bears Den up in the Blue Ridge Mountains, Tracy in the Horseshoe Curve, best burger in Bluemont, Josh and Elena at, at Boulder Crest, longtime friend of the pod, John Spencer, interview coming out soon. Amazing story about hope. Do Please do listen to that. And Stephen from Ukraine Frontline, Tatiana and Stephen in uh, Colorado Springs. Stephen, thanks again for dinner. Appreciate that, buddy. 
Dean, Tony, and General David at the US Air Force Academy, I was humbled and honoured to attend the 9-11 commemoration on Monday. Eric, Tosha, Ted, Michelle, and all the students on the Global Studies Programme at Providence Day High School in Charlotte, General Rhyme, John Rhyme, Chris Grassano, Abe, and all the folks at Piccadilly Arsenal. Thanks, dudes. Please let me have the footage. The staff at the White House, after the massive ball ache of a faff to get in yesterday. But anyway, it all worked out well. Admiral John Kirby, thank you. The NSC National Security Council spokesman, thank you, thank you, thank you. Numerous and various staff of United and American Airlines who had to put up with the idiot Brit in 18C. All the folks who came to the event last night, as Francis said, really appreciate you coming out. Love, love chatting. I wish we'd had longer. And to everyone who's listened, helped, shown me where the foot brake is on a Ford 150 monster truck. Those that have stuck with us, thank you. Thanks, everyone. I'm now I'm heading off to a beach in Florida for the weekend. Bit of R and R back Monday. There's a, a White Snake tribute band tonight. I'm told so I'll do well for you know, balance the equilibrium. Back Monday from Jacksonville. I'm feeling every mile of the last week, but thank you all for your love and support. And we go again Monday. Thank you, Dom, Valerie and Francis. Yesterday, our own Dominic Nichols went to the White House to talk to White House National Security Council spokesman John Kirby. Here's their conversation. Mr. Kirby, how much pressure is the administration under from members of Congress and elsewhere who say that military support for Ukraine is a waste of U.S. taxpayers' money? Well, we have seen uh, a growing number of uh, particularly House Republicans criticize future spending and support for Ukraine. But I would tell you a couple of things. First of all, the support from Capitol Hill remains very, very strong, not just from a bicameral perspective, but a bipartisan one. And the House leadership from Speaker McCarthy right on down, of the relevant committees that have oversight over support for Ukraine are also very supportive. So it's a small group of very vocal, very right-wing House Republicans that continue to to resist additional support for Ukraine. But uh, the president's confident that the support that we're getting from the leadership, again, in both chambers remains high. Vivak Viraswamy says that support for Ukraine is disastrous and a distraction from U.S. domestic issues. Is he right? Well, I think you can understand that I'm not going to wade into electoral politics. I can't do that here from the National Security Council. What I, all I can tell you is that what, what's happening in Ukraine isn't just about Ukraine. Now, first and foremost, it is. You've got thousands of people that have been killed or wounded. You've got people flung from their homes. You have young children being ripped from their families and sent to concentration camps uh, in Russian-occupied territory. I mean, it's a brutal war. So obviously, first and foremost, it's happening there. But it goes beyond that. Uh, If we just walk away, and this is the case that President Biden has made to the American people, if we just walk away from this, if we just let Putin have Ukraine, where does it stop? Because the next stop is right on the eastern flank of NATO. And if people are worried about the cost in blood and treasure on this war in Ukraine, then think about how much more exorbitant that cost is going to be if we walk away and allow Mr. Putin to be encouraged to continue to take more territory or to threaten NATO's eastern flank. You talk about NATO's eastern flank there. So would you support NATO taking action to provide air defense for NATO members on NATO territory that is currently being physically hit by Russian munitions. I think you remain in. Well, that, look, that's a decision for the alliance, not for the United States to make. We have we have bolstered air policing efforts uh, along that eastern flank. We have moved uh, aircraft uh, around that eastern flank. We have added aircraft uh, to the eastern flank and uh, to the eastern flank nations. And we're going to continue to to be to work in lockstep with our NATO allies about proper air policing capabilities. But I, I don't think it's useful to get into a hypothetical here. Uh, about actual self-defense operations uh, and getting ahead uh, of where the alliance might be. In an interview yesterday with my colleague Francis Durnley, Senator Mitt Romney said that the 5% the U.S. is spending, 5% of the defense budget the U.S. is spending on support for Ukraine is a wise investment to decimate, his words, decimate the Russian army. Would you like other NATO members to make a similar sort of commitment, same level in their defense budgets? We are leaving it to each country that's supporting Ukraine. And I know you asked about NATO, but but I think it's important to remember there are some 50 countries around the world, well beyond just the NATO alliance, that are supporting Ukraine in various forms, whether it's financial system, system assistance, humanitarian assistance, or security assistance. In fact, next week, 
Secretary of Defense Austin will be going back to Ramstein again for yet another meeting of the Ukraine Defense Contact Group to elicit more support. And we are, have been, from the very beginning, we've been very conscious about leaving it to each individual nation to determine what they can provide, not just from a financial perspective, but from a uh, content perspective. It's up to them. It, these are sovereign decisions. We're not arm twisting. Uh, we're not cajoling. We're, we're not trying to force anybody's hand. We want every nation around the world who can and will support the Ukraine to do it uh, in a way that's consistent with the, their own values and their own economies and their own, the, their own popular will. The whole fight in Ukraine is about the idea of sovereignty. And it would be really ironic and hypocritical for the United States while we're trying to support Ukraine's sovereignty and right to exist as a nation state to then try to arm twist other nations to, to do more than they're already doing. Yeah, but, but friends can have very frank discussions with each other and say, look, I think you need to step up a little bit more here. We have, we have had uh, and we'll continue to have conversations with all these allies and partners, all 50 of them, as we will do in Germany next week and we'll certainly do privately to see what they can do. I'm not saying that we aren't talking to them individually about capabilities they might have that we don't have. For instance, I mean, so much of the systems that the Ukrainians use are based on old Soviet systems, old Russian systems. Now, they are transitioning more and more to Western NATO interoperable systems, but they still operate a lot of that. So, yes, we're going to some countries that have systems that the Ukrainians can use and use quickly and seeing what they can do to provide it. I'm not saying we're not having those conversations or asking for that support, but we aren't arm twisting. Yeah. But, I mean, there is also a scale thing here. I was at Picatinny Arsenal yesterday and uh, General John Ryan, who's the commanding general there, was saying how they are on course to very, very quickly be up from the circa 10,155 mil shells they're producing a month now to 86,000. They're on, they've got a very clear path that that's funded. The processes are there. 86,000 a month, that's only about half of what Russia is expected to be able to produce next year. So, you know, you're doing a lot of heavy lifting, the U.S., is it not time for the rest of the other, the other external facing supporting nations for Ukraine to also just do a little bit more? Again, every nation has to decide for itself. There has been a lot of burden sharing here. And one of the reasons why, again, Secretary Austin's going back to Germany is to, is to see if he can solicit more help from more nations. So we want every nation that's willing and able to do what they can. And, we're, and, and we've made the commitment. President Biden has said it Many, many times. We're with this for as long as it takes. We'll support Ukraine. Um, and so we're trying to lead by example. When you say, and President Biden has said, as long as it takes, some people, there is the argument that the, by, by not going all in with aid, uh, military aid, has meant that the war is longer than it, it may have been. Do you accept that argument? Do you think that the, the arguments for not supplying Tacums and other other um, sophisticated niche military hardware no longer stand up against this idea that it's provocative and escalatory. We have evolved the capabilities that we have provided Ukraine as the war itself evolved. So when it kicked off 18 months ago, what was everybody talking about? Stinger air defense, uh, shoulder-fired missiles, javelin anti-tank missiles, small arms and ammunition, uh, tactical vehicles, because... Putin was making his move on Kyiv through a ground convoy. Then, when Mr. Putin couldn't take Kyiv and he pulled all his troops out to the north to refit and uh, reman, what did he do? He came back into the Donbass area. And so what was needed then? Artillery. And in air defense, but mostly artillery and these long-range rocket systems. And so the United States led the world in providing that. Uh, air defense has, in the last six, eight months, become an even more acute need as Russia continues to rain drones and missiles down on civilian infrastructure, and so we stepped up with Patriot missiles and other uh, NASAMs, as we call them, uh, other short and medium-range air defense. So we have evolved the capabilities as the war has evolved, and we believe that's the right course because the war has changed in its nature. Agreed, but the model you've just described does suggest that Russia has the has the momentum there. You're responding. I would to, disagree with that 100%. Well, you're responding to what they've done instead of saying, let's get ahead of that. So, for example, why are we not now having the discussion about attackums? Why is the discussion about allowing Ukraine to take the war inside Russia? Why is that still seen to be... So there's a lot there. You just... Let me unpack this. So, first of all, it's not about reacting to what Russia's doing. It's reacting to what is the, the needs on the battlefield. And they change. 
And some of these capabilities that were given uh, Ukraine are for them to take the offense, for them to move on Russian uh, positions. And they are. This counteroffensive is making some progress. Is it going as far as fast as the Ukrainians would like? They'd be the first to tell you that it's not. But we are moving in that direction. And again, we will continue to evolve that as needed. On ATACMS, there has been a long conversation here in the United States about those long-range cruise missiles. And that conversation is ongoing even as you and I are speaking today. No decision has been made yet. The president hasn't said he'll, he'll do it. But he continues to want the interagency, the Defense Department, the State Department, here at the National Security Council, to consider uh, ATACMs. A, a and, we're, and we're doing that. They are not off the table. Do you think strong? Oh, but I also wanted to, you know, sorry to interrupt. Because no, uh, you also asked about attacks inside Russia. Let me just make that point, and I'll, I'll make it crystal clear. Still today, we do not encourage and we do not engender attacks inside Russian territory. Why? We believe that the war is in Ukraine, and we believe that that's where Ukraine should be uh, focusing on the Russian occupied areas inside Ukraine. Uh, and we believe that's where the, the fight is and that's, that's where we want the focus to be. Now look, President Zelensky is the commander-in-chief of his armed forces. He gets to determine where he strikes and where he doesn't strike. We provide him the capabilities, but ultimately the decisions are for him. Now we have made it clear that we don't want to see U.S. provided capabilities striking inside Russia. We also have to be concerned, and unapologetically so, uh, about the potential risks of escalation here. I think we could all agree that doing exactly what Putin says this war, making this a proxy war, making it about the West versus Russia, NATO versus Russia, which is exactly his ridiculous argument, proving that to be the case by engendering and encouraging attacks on Russia and escalating this conflict would not be good, not only for the people of Ukraine, but it wouldn't be good for our national security interests. It wouldn't be good for our allies and our partners. Uh, and yet, just the last one on this, the last time there was a, a clear um, invasion of one country against another and the military force was used to eject Iraqi forces from Kuwait back in the early 90s, the very first thing that happened in that campaign was areas of Baghdad and elsewhere were hit. So the idea of, of ejecting forces from a, a piece of territory does not also require military action elsewhere inside that sovereign country. That, that is a false premise, is it not? No, I would disagree with you. Look, again... Uh, the, the, you, that's, that's a uh, false comparison I think you're making there. Russia, to, is, Russia is a major nuclear power. And Mr. Putin has rattled the sabers with some reckless uh, nuclear rhetoric. And they have a much bigger, much more capable military than Saddam Hussein did. So it's a false comparison. Uh, and I don't think using historical examples in this case really is relevant. We want Ukraine to succeed on the battlefield. And no nation has done more than the United States to help them succeed. And they are. They are making progress. So we stand by the support that we're going to give Ukraine, that we have and we will continue to give Ukraine. But we also stand by the fundamental belief that World War III is not in anybody's best interest. Could stronger deterrence messaging from the West have made any difference at all, do you think, to Putin's decision to invade? I'm sorry, can you say that much stronger deterrence messaging over the last few years? So Georgia 2008, we didn't do anything. 2014, invasion of Ukraine, there was limited, limited action. Meanwhile, Nord Stream 1 and 2 was taking place. So we... You know, that's a difficult, that's a difficult thing to, to answer. Uh, I mean, each of those situations was uh, unique. I can't speak for the decision-making of previous administrations or the previous leadership of our allies and partners during us. All I can tell you is that as he began to build up his forces in the fall and the winter before he moved across that line, we certainly made it clear to Mr. Putin that there would be ramifications and repercussions. We certainly made it clear that Russia will be held accountable and pressure would be put on Russia. And we have done that. Now, he made the decision to move across that line and invade a, a neighboring country. And we have done everything we can to help the Ukrainians repel that invasion. And now, speaking of Russia there, clearly in those terms, whether we like it or not, Russia as a P5 member is a, is a pillar of the world's international security architecture. The UN has also put arms control sanctions on North Korea, a decision which was... And who voted for that, by exactly, the way? Exactly. Yeah, so, they did. So if Russia can vote for that, and yet still in the last couple of days have discussions about... Yeah. 
does that not show that the architecture is just no longer fit for purpose? Well, I think President Biden, and you'll hear him talk about this uh, a little bit more next week. I mean, we've been clear that we believe that uh, it is time to take a look at the architecture of uh, the Security Council. We believe it should be more inclusive and more comprehensive. I, I don't think we have an issue with the idea of taking a look at the or architecture itself. In terms of more members or the, the veto or what? what, what? Well, I think we just think it's time to have a discussion about the architecture and the organization. And as I said, more inclusive. I think President Biden and the United States would support more members. How does China not emerge stronger from this war? President Biden's talked about this too. President Xi has issues at home. He's got an economy that's struggling. He's got uh, uh, a population at home that's becoming increasingly re restless. As the president said, that he wouldn't want to trade places uh, with President Xi, and probably no other world leader would either. We'll see, China could, they could play a constructive role here, because there's not too many countries that have any important influence or access to President Putin. China's one of them, President Xi's one of them. And we've made it clear to the PRC that if they want to take a constructive role, if they want to get involved in helping end this war, we would welcome that, as long as they do it in a way that is in keeping with the UN Charter, respecting the sovereignty and territorial integrity of Ukraine, and as long as it includes Ukrainian perspectives. So we were glad that, that President Xi and uh, President Zelensky had a chance to talk several months ago. We were glad when the Chinese put forward a, a, an envoy to Ukraine. So it's important for them to have those perspectives. China could play a role. So I, you know, I, I don't know whether you're saying they're going to come out stronger or weaker here. They've got their own domestic problems to deal with, but they could play a role here in helping to end this war. When I say strong, I mean the challenge to the international rules-based order that is ongoing in Ukraine, if it is allowed to ex succeed and the post-war, post-Second World War settlement and the architects that we've enjoyed, the peace we've enjoyed for years, China has tried to change that. Russia is, is, is violating it now, and if it, if it is not stamped on, then, then we just move away from this architecture, move, move towards a, a world of might is right. We don't see that happening. In the UN, 143 nations condemned Russia's aggression. Uh, 143 out of 190 plus, that ain't too bad. So it's difficult to see any scenario in which the rules-based order is just going to get tossed over the transom. Yes, you're right. China would like to see that happen. So would Russia. Of the two countries, China's really the only ones, not only with the intent, but the potential means to move in that direction. But we haven't seen that happen. And it would, it would also further isolate Beijing. And I think you would see the international community react swiftly against that. Now, yesterday also with Francis Daly, Mitt Romney said that when one is in one's 80s, that is too old for public office. I mean, do you think that the age issue, as it's been raised about President Biden and possible Mr. Trump again. Do you think the whole age thing has been overblown and it's the person and their, their capabilities that's important? Or do you think there is a age is a relevant subject to be discussed? The president believes that, uh, that his age lends him, gives him wisdom and experience. And when just think about the things you and I were talking about in the last 15 minutes. This is complicated stuff and it's dangerous stuff. And you want somebody at the helm, a commander in chief, who understands these leaders, who understands these issues, who has been around the world, who has these relationships. There is no question. And I was just on the trip with the president to the G20 and to Vietnam, five days around the world. He had some long days and he had some significant discussions and we got an awful lot done. And it's difficult to see how somebody with less experience, less wisdom and fewer relationships could do as much as President Biden did just on that trip or in the last two and a half years. He's proud of that wisdom that his age has given him and his time in, in public service has given him. And he's proud of the experience that he brings to some very meaty, very weighty, very significant national security issues. And he will be able to concentrate on a possible second term in office if his son is indicted or, or, or convicted of the, the, the charge of the lead against him today? The, the president loves his son and uh, is supporting his son. His son's gone through an awful lot and his parents are right there with him. Uh, and that's not going to change. He's a father, and he has been a son himself, uh, and that's where his head is uh, with his family. But it's also very much on the country's business, and you don't have to look any further than, again, just what's happened in the last couple of weeks and what's going to happen next week up in New York City at the UN General Assembly and see that this is a president who 
as a loving father, can also be a very determined, very experienced, very wise, uh, and very dedicated public servant. Mr. Kirby, thanks so much for your time. Thank you for talking to this other pleasure. Thanks, Tom. Yesterday, I went to the World Bank to speak to Alternate Executive Director Roman Kishore. We spoke about the World Bank's support for Ukraine and the challenges economically that the country faces in the future. Here's our conversation. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Roman. First, can you just introduce yourself? Tell us about your role here at the World Bank and tell us a little bit about your experience. I'm Roman Kachur. I represent Ukraine here at the World Bank, Washington, D.C. I'm a member of the board, senior advisor in our office. World Bank is a global institution with 189 countries from virtually all around the world. It's a development institution to to support the country's economic development and, and reconstruction, where how the World Bank initially started. I would like to say a few words about the role World Bank played in Ukraine. It has been a, a key partner since Ukraine became independent. Ukraine became member of the World Bank in 1992, but particularly since the breakout, the big war, as we say, since February 23, World Bank became a major financier and a major platform for, for Ukraine. It's not only our own resources, but most of the donors like US, UK, Japan, many others channel their resources through the World Bank. So the World Bank became like a unique mobilization platform for Ukraine. Basically, like 50 cents of each dollar Ukraine receives from partners are coming through the World Bank. That's a large amount. By now, that's $23 billion that the World Bank already disbursed to Ukraine and mobilized around $38 billion for Ukraine. So that's a huge numbers and basically keeps Ukraine afloat. Could you talk to us a little bit more about where this money is going? What are the projects the World Bank is funding in Ukraine? So the the basic thing is to keep the economy running. Because in any economy, you have to keep to pay salaries to government employees, to teachers, doctors, pensions. So the so-called the essential needs need to be covered. Otherwise, the country cannot exist. And the World Bank created a unique project. It has a, a symbolic acronym called PEACE, which mobilizes resources of the World Bank own resources, but also from many donors around the world to cover the essential needs. And so far, all essential needs since the war started has been covered. As probably many of you know, the economy, after the big invasion, contracted to almost one-third. Government, and thanks to support from partners, managed to, to keep it extremely resilient and, and stable. So uh, as of now, the foreign reserves are at the same level, even higher than before the pre-war. We have inflation single digit. Uh, there is no arrears on any payments to teachers or to doctors, to any salaries, because the World Bank uh, Project Peace and, and, and other partners. And this is part of the story. Also, the destructions that uh, Russia has made are massive, and uh, we cannot wait until end of the war. Uh, so uh, World Bank currently operates a portfolio of 15 projects, basically in all areas that uh, you can imagine. So restoring the energy infrastructure, transport infrastructure, all social infrastructure like schools, shelters, housing, the projects. Uh, we will have project uh, to support the private sector in agriculture. So basically covering a wide range of uh, needs that Ukraine has, urgent needs that Ukraine has right now, and still focusing on improving efficiency and doing reforms. So each of this project is conditional. It's not only rebuilding, but it's a building back better, more climate resilient and green uh, economy. Could you just go into a little more detail about the process here? How does the money go to Ukraine? Does it go to the government? Is it then released to a sort of a local level? What's the flow of money from the World Bank to the ground where it's being used? So major resources are mobilized either through the World Bank own resources or through the donors to the trust funds that World Bank operates. So we have a number of trust funds uh, to which donors can contribute. Like I already mentioned about the peace project. So there is a peace trust fund. So those donors who wish to support the Ukraine essential needs, they contribute funds to the peace project. We have a Ukraine recovery trust fund. This trust fund is focused on the recovery needs in different areas. We have a, a trust funds to support the private sector. And we provide the World Bank, the, and now they 
part of the World Bank. It's called International Finance uh, Corporation, which is part of the World Bank, provides lending and equity to the private sector. So after the funds were, the donors transferred the, the funds to the trust fund, the World Bank basically designs and operates a project because we, we seek to use the, the most efficient use of, of donor funds and also to achieve some development objectives, not just rebuilding, but, but rebuilding it better. So for jointly with the government, the, the World Bank designs the projects, how we basically are doing reconstruction, what are the needs. And like in the banking institution, the board of the World Bank, where we sit here on the 13th floor, approves the projects and signs the agreement with the government. The money are transferred to the government and government operates the money according to the framework which was agreed in the project. And I think it's a few things that's worse. Ukraine did a lot of innovations uh, since the, uh, the, in the past 18 months, even here on, on the World Bank uh, operations. So first of all, the peace project to support the essential needs, it became the largest project the World Bank ever did since its inception in 1944. So the, the, never in its history, World Bank mobilized so much money for a single country as it did for Ukraine. For the reconstruction, uh, the, the needs are huge. The, the recent study which World Bank did is called the Rapid Damage and Needs Assessment Report. Very preliminary, but still some estimates. Estimates the recovery needs more than 400 billion U.S. dollars. So it's uh, enormous amount of funds and also the, the capacity to reconstruct. And you need to design some phases, how you mobilize these funds, how you channel them to the areas where they need it most. So the World Bank came with an idea, so-called the framework project, where the project is designed at a larger scale, but the resources or the absorption capacity are more limited. But once you have a bigger picture and then you can finance as the resources become available, as the donor contribute more and you have more implementation capacity. So by now we have designed a number of framework projects in energy sector, in infrastructure, in housing repair. And as the donors are able to deliver more funds, we transfer these funds. But basically we don't go back to the... Uh, project uh, preparation and approval procedures uh, for each single amount. And also we are able to have a bigger picture how we wish to reconstruct and basically interconnect different uh, areas. You've spoken about the donors. Could you just give us a rundown? Who are the biggest donors for Ukraine through the World Bank? Through the World Bank, the biggest donor is the United. Running down is Japan, United Kingdom, Norway. So these are the, the one of the largest, but there are many other countries uh, that, that are contributing. When we were chatting before I turned the recorder on, you mentioned the unique aspects of the Ukrainian economy. Could you talk a little bit more about that? What do you mean by that? Well, unique is uh, many countries, uh, especially in the recent years, were struggling with military expenditure. So how much you allocate for military, how much you allocate for everything else, like uh, schools, uh, building hospital, healthcare, or uh, your infrastructure development. Right now, uh, all resources that Ukraine mobilized domestically, 100%, are spent for military. So the country at war, everything you collect as taxes, custom duties, local borrowing, 100% goes to the military. Everything else, the other non-military spending, are covered by, by donors. So that makes you quite, quite a unique setup and, and like example how uh, exhausting the, the war can be. It can basically consume all country resources. Obviously, it's not sustainable in the long term. Eventually, all very much hope the, the, world, uh, the war will end uh, sooner rather than later, and Ukraine will win. But in the meanwhile, we are extremely grateful to all our donors and the World Bank as a partner, which was able to set up this unique mobilization platform to mobilize such a huge amounts of funds uh, to keep the, the economy. And as I made a reference about, if you look on the basic indicators, how the Ukraine, the, the economy is feeling. So the foreign reserves are, are stable, higher even than the pre-war. Inflation is in a single digit. Probably not all the countries in, in the Eurozone can have it. So we are moving towards the reducing the key rate because the inflation, we managed to bring the inflation down. So that's pretty remarkable to mobilize and keep everything running on such a high scale in the country of size of Ukraine. 
Could you talk a little bit about the challenges you have in your job and that the World Bank maybe has faced in doing all of this? Well, the challenge is obviously, first, I think it's a political challenge. And we do see the world is, is splitting a lot of geopolitical tensions. And here, having 100, 189 countries, we have basically the whole world in two, two floors, uh, keeping this support ongoing. And the World Bank board consists of all members. It's not only G7, EU, or those who support Ukraine. So we have even Russia is a member of the World Bank board until now. So keeping this political support, so the ability of the World Bank to make decisions, I think it's the, the prime objective because otherwise it would be impossible to mobilize this financing. Second, a lot of operational challenges that, that you are, we are facing. I, the, as you realize, the scale of this financing is unprecedented that the World Bank ever did and probably any other countries ever did since the Second World War. The time, is, time frame is, is very tight. So we are always trying to catch up. The winter is coming. We are trying to prepare the energy infrastructure because we do expect Russia will do the same bombing of the energy infrastructure in the coming months, how to make it more resilient. We're trying to complete the construction of the school shelters because we want the kids to return back to school to a safer environment, despite the bombing and shelling that, that, that we need to support. Trying to rebuild the houses, again, it's getting cold. So this operational challenges on unprecedented scale is really difficult, both on the countryside, but also on the World, the world Bank side. And we are looking at different options, how to scale up this capacity and basically try to do more. You mentioned in your answer there the fact that Russia is no longer a member of the board. Could you tell us what happened? What, no, um, they still is, 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 still oh, member of the board oh, until now. So we initiated, we, we requested, but uh, interesting enough, uh, the World Bank articles of association were drafted back in 1944 at the end of the Second World War. So back then that was... Uh, the institution of allies, and they did not envisage that eventually over time there may be the case we might have such a diverse views, very similar to what the UN is. And if the, even if the member of the institution violates the main principle of this institution, which are development, and they are reversing this development with destroying the infrastructure, the human capital, that there is still no uh, like a legal procedure how the membership can be suspended or terminated uh, for, for that. I think this reform, that's a political, highly political decision. They will eventually come uh, after Ukraine's victory. But uh, this stage, they are member of uh, each board meeting. They comment on the board meetings. They uh, have conversation with other board members, and etc. Looking forward then to the future, we've spoken about the sort of immediate needs of Ukraine, but what do you think are the priorities for the country in the next few years and looking onwards? Well, Ukraine has been coming through a tremendous change as an economy, as, as a country. Historically, in the past almost a century, it was part of the Soviet Union. So Soviet Russia occupied Ukraine in the early of the 20th century and basically forced it to join the Soviet Union. And the political, economic, and all ties were towards the, the Russia. So the, the trade, the supply chains were all oriented toward, towards the Russia. As by now, there is no trade, there is no, no investment, it's all severe, right? So the, the way for Ukraine is toward the, the European Union. It's still a long way to go. Like if we look on the our neighboring countries, uh, like when Poland joined the EU, the their GDP was uh, almost half of the EU average. Romania was around 45%, Bulgaria maybe 40%. Ukraine currently is around uh, 23% of uh, EU average. So to join the EU is still a long way, way forward. Most of these reforms that Ukraine will have to do and to rebuild, it will require a role of private sector to play and, and also the, the reforms internally to build the production capacity, to increase the output, to increase the human capital, to make our refugees return back, maybe enhance the immigration policies to, to increase the, the labor force, but also improve the efficiency, how we can the technology transfer, how we can do it, how we can do it more efficiently and better and more productive way. So basically 
It's a classic total factor productivity model, capital, labor, and, and, and technologies that we have to focus on. But behind that is uh, the reforms and uh, that, that the country has to do to, to move towards the EU. For many of our listeners who are not from Ukraine and are watching what's going on, could you just give us your take on the private sector in Ukraine? How, how does it differ to elsewhere? What should people know? Well, first of all, important to mention that private sector appear to be extremely resilient despite the war. So recent World Bank studies showed that only one out of five firms suspended operations in the, since the war. So four out of five were able to adjust, to relocate or to, to change their supply chain, still able to continue, to continue operations. But obviously the private sector is severely hit. The exports on the, through the seaports is blocked. So the prime item of the Ukraine exports, agri-products, became limited. All the Ukraine is trying to navigate all, all kinds of other routes uh, through the Danube, through, through the land. But the businesses are adjusting to this shock and are able to operate. Second is the capital needs. So basically the businesses, some of them were damaged by the Russian and others may need a working capital because of temporary shocks. They need, they need financing. Many businesses need financing to, to support the operations. I can mention one of the recent operations, the company called Agrofusion. It's a tomato processing company in the south of Ukraine. I met the owner of this company in London during the Ukraine reform conference in, in June. And we just recently approved the projects from the World Bank to support this company. So they are a major producer, processor of tomatoes in the south of Ukraine. They have three processing facilities. Two out of three were occupied by Russians. And when Russians came, they basically, not destroyed, but they damaged all the equipment. It was a high-tech equipment, so they just cut off the wires, removed the, the computers. So when Ukraine liberated the, the Kherson in those areas they immediately turned back uh, trying to restore. They had clients from 50 countries around the world, major companies like Unilever and others, buying the, the tomato paste from this company. And obviously, they were not operating for some time. They had some arrears. The equipment was damaged, so they needed the capital to, to restore the operations. But this relatively small amount of capital that they are receiving basically helped to restore the whole operation for this company. I think it's a very good example. And it's an export-oriented company. People can have jobs. The products are exported out of Ukraine. And they are still operating in the area which are under shelling, but they keep the factories running. Still under shelling? Yes. Wow. The Russians are shelling the Mykolaiv and Kherson region virtually every couple of days. Here in Washington, even walking around today, and as you described in the World Bank, there are people from every single nationality working in all sorts of different sectors. Do you get a strong sense of solidarity and support from people in the city? What's it been like for you being based here, doing your work during the full-scale invasion? Oh, for sure. Just uh, yesterday, uh, Ukraine embassy did the Independence uh, Day celebrations. It uh, delayed uh, the Independence uh, Day is uh, August 24th, but the you, because of U.S. holidays and vacations, that the celebration, the formal celebration, was was yesterday, and uh, it was unprecedented amount of senior level officials from U.S., uh, but also from other officials that are here in in D.C. But and also the the people that that attended, my colleagues from from the bank. So I feel this support both here from my colleagues at the board and others, people around neighborhoods, as we see a lot of Ukrainian flags uh, as you walk around D.C. or or D.C. neighborhoods. So Ukraine really feels that U.S. is a strategic partner. It's not only, it's in deeds. So we see it's in financing, in support of arms, in just personal support. Many Ukrainian refugees who recently moved to U.S. area receive a lot of support just from citizens in everything they, they need. We've talked about an awful lot of things today, but is there one thing you'd want our listeners to really understand that you want to really sort of emphasize for them? This war is an existential war for Ukraine, so there is no way Ukraine can stop retreats. There is no other areas where they can retreat. It's the war to protect the not only Ukrainian borders, but that's the borders of the EU. And I believe it's it has an implication globally on, on 
many, so many aspects like food security, energy security. When I talk to my colleagues at the board, and I think many of them realize that, that uh, the spillovers of this war all around the world. And uh, the sooner we are able to end this war, the better world will feel uh, almost immediately. So we have to, in the meanwhile, we have to keep this support for, for Ukraine. Here, the World Bank, but as well as bilaterally through other countries, through other institutions, and just hope that there will be this victory sooner rather than later. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you so much, Roman, for his time. Just a final note from me. Many listeners will be aware that yesterday was our subscriber event in Washington. It was a live podcast, the audio of which will go out in the next few days. But I just wanted to say thank you so much to everyone in the United States who's made us feel so welcome and talked to us. Thank you to the Telegraph team, Giles, Florence, Jamie and Kate for their work on this trip. We wouldn't be able to do it without them. And thank you, of course, to the staff at the British Embassy. It's an odd feeling for us sometimes. We are, of course, very proud of the thing we've managed to create. But of course, we know that the world would be a better place if we didn't have to do this every single weekday. So thank you, as always, to all of our Ukrainian friends who share their experiences and talk to us. And a special thanks from me to Jeffrey Berger, who has been so helpful and brilliant, really, at uh, getting us in contact with especially interesting people to talk to on this trip to America. Thank you very much, Jeffrey and Shana Tavar. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine The Latest. We'll sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to the podcast apps. If you appreciated this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Today's episode was produced by Elliot Lampett in London and Giles Gear in Washington. The exec producers are me, David Knowles, and Louisa Wells. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.